Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jen Kwok. And at one point, I looked at a bus that was passing by, and I saw a poster of Dustin Hoffman, and I felt connected to Dustin Hoffman, you guys. That and more. But before that, don't forget to check risk-show.com slash live for our January live shows in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And in San Fran, we'll also be doing our new curated social event that we call Risk Presents What's Your Story? Again, all of that is at risk-show.com slash live. We'll be right back. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Beastie Boys behind me now. And I'm happy to say this episode is called The Best of Happy Stories. I'll tell you, 2023 has been a challenging year for us. But we did celebrate turning 15 this year. That is monumental in this industry. So we figured... Why not make the last episode of the year a trio of three happy stories from way back when that you might not have heard before, or at least not in a long time. We're going to start doing more of these the best of this kind of story or the best of that kind of story because we've noticed a lot of folks find that especially appealing. People will email us saying something like, can you point me to some happy stories? So we figured, eh, you know what? Why not just start more series for kinds of stories? So in a little bit, we're going to hear from Sean Kennedy, a story that she told when Risk was live in Charleston in 2013. But before that, 
A little something from Madison Perry in a story he told at a Risk Live show in LA in 2015. Here's Madison now with a story we call Hubbies. Hello, everybody. Good evening. Thanks for being here. So last summer, I went to uh, Burning Man for the first time. Uh, And for those of you that don't know, it's this counterculture festival, and it's in the middle of the desert in Nevada. But it's not like a music festival like Coachella. There's no performers booked. There's no main stage. And it's the middle of nowhere. There's no hotels. There's no water. There's no electricity. You can't buy anything. Ice is the only thing they sell there, so you have to bring everything you need for a week. And basically 50,000 people go to the desert and just get weird for a week. Um, There's singing and raving and dancing and yoga and nudity and drugs and drinking. Uh, Although I didn't go for any of those things, I went for sex. That was what I was interested in. I wanted to have super dirty, illicit desert sex uh, with hot hippie girls. That was basically how it would work in my mind was that I would show up at Burning Man and someone would greet me and he'd be like, hi, welcome, Uh, did you bring your penis? (laughs) And I'd be like, I did. And he'd be like, perfect, you're gonna need it a lot. And I'd be like, okay, great. And he'd say, just head that way. There's like literally a pile of naked women ready to sex you. And I'd be like, just like a fuck pile? He'd be like, yes, a fuck pile. That's, head over, you can't miss it. It's just a fuck pile that way. Have a great time, man. That's in my head. That's kind of approximating what I thought was going to go down. Um, There was no fuck piles at Burning Man. um, And I did not have sex with multiple partners. I did not go to an orgy. Uh, I did have sex once. Uh, I was on the last day. And uh, I was disappointed because my goal going into it was I was like, I want to fuck someone wearing a wolf mask. (laughs) And I meant it both literally and metaphorically. You know what I mean? Uh, but there was no wolf mask involved. And the thing is that Burning Man, there is a lot of sex to be had. There's nudity everywhere. There's free spirits. And there's camps. There's camps set up. There's sex camps. They, like, their theme at Burning Man is throwing orgies. Um, but my, the camp I was with uh, it was not a sex camp. We just we threw parties every day. It was, like 40, it was great. It was a great camp, but it was not a very sexual place. And I could have gone to the orgy camps, except... Uh, what I found out was single men are not invited to orgies. Uh, and the, the reason, it was explained to me, the reason is if single men were invited to orgies, orgies would be nothing but single men. <laughs> It'd just be like a bunch of dudes being like, so when's this orgy kicking off? <laughs> like that would there'd be, you know, so. Uh, and there was a lot of free spirits there. Maybe I could have had to like pick someone up, but I'm not like a pickup artist, one night stand kind of guy. Like I'm good at dating you know, talking to someone, getting their number, asking them out. But at Burning Man, there's no cell phone reception. There's no internet. So there's no meeting up later. So basically, what you have to do is be like, hey, person I just met, want to go have sex in the tent I share with three dudes? I got an air mattress covered in sand. How's that sound? And I could not figure out how to make that sound seductive, that line, at all. Uh, So I just did not do well with women while I was there. But I still had a good time because instead of going on a sexual odyssey, I fell in love with a man. 
Uh, and we didn't have sex. I didn't come out of the closet. Uh, what I did was way gayer than that. <laughs> I met a guy named Pedro, and I fell head over heels in friendship. We really fell for each other. And the way it happened, and this is how a lot of things happen at Burning Man, is drugs. Drugs were highly involved. And I am not like a big drug guy. Before I went to Burning Man, I had, uh, other than pot, I'd done cocaine once, and I'd tried shrooms once, and, and that was it. And I was from the D.A.R.E. generation, and I wasn't sure about drugs. Um, like, I'm, I'm so not a drug guy that when I was writing this story, I Googled, can you get in trouble for saying you did drugs? Uh, and it, yeah. It turns out you can't, uh, according to Yahoo Answers. Which I believe will stand up in court. So I feel comfortable telling this story. So not a drug guy, but I was like, I'm going to Burning Man, I'm gonna be open to stuff, man. I'm just gonna let whatever happens. Like, I'm gonna do some drugs, I'm gonna be a drugger. That's what I'm gonna do, as they're called. Um, so the first, uh, the second night I was there, our entire camp of 30 people all dropped acid. And I was like, well, let's go straight to the top with this thing. Um, and so I took some acid too. And the thing I, I learned that night, um, I learned why people do drugs, and it's because they're super fun. <laughs> they're the best. It turns out, I love LSD. It's amazing. Uh, and so we went out, 30 of us, and we wandered into the desert. At first my skin was tingling, and then the lights were twinkling and had trails, and then solid things were kind of rippling like water. And uh, I feel like when you're drunk, you kind of, you get tunnel vision. Like whatever's in front of you has your attention. But on LSD, it felt like someone had put a wide-angle lens on my brain. <laughs> like I saw everything, and I felt everything, and I was like, the world is vibrating, and I'm vibrating with it. Like, <laughs> And uh, the ironic thing about all the drug use at Burning Man is it's kind of the last place you need to use drugs. Like, it's a trippy place to begin with. Like, people are walking around wearing uh, steampunk gear, and there's nudity, and people, uh, at night, you have to wear lights all over you because you're out in the middle of the desert, and there's no exterior lights, so you don't want to get hit. And there's these things called art cars, which are, like, modified cars that are made into these giant moving um, sculptures, basically. Like, they look like octopuses and submarines and trains, and they all have lights on them, and they blare music, and they shoot fire into the air. Like, it's crazy. And then, then you throw LSD onto that, and you're like, whoa. There was a few times where I was like, Madison, you're just on drugs. That's why things look weird. You're not in the movie Tron. <laughs> like, that was, that was how I had to, like, keep myself. Um, so at, at some point on the night, in the middle of this trip, we end up at a place called the Temple at Burning Man. The Temple is this big, kind of uh, cathedral-looking thing, and it's made all of wood, and it's very ornate and very beautiful, and they burn it at the end of the week, and it's this like zen impermanence thing, because it gets done right before Burning Man, and then they burn it, it exists for a week. And it's sort of the, the holy place at uh, Burning Man. So when you go in, like people are crying and telling stories, and, uh, and the people put pictures on the wall of loved ones that died in the previous year, including dogs and cats, which was a little weird. There's <laughs> like a poster-sized picture of a cat was one of the first things I saw when I walked in. I was like, what is... Uh, and it's like super sincere and, and kind of weird, to be honest. Like you go and you're like, oh, okay, this is a bit weird. Um, and so I'm in this temple and this is where the love affair started with Sweet Pedro. Um, we were sitting and he was kind of weirded out by the vibe in there too, so we were chatting and we got really involved in a discussion about Nicolas Cage. 
and we got so involved, someone overheard us, and this very proper Englishman sat up and he said, is someone speaking of Nick Cage in the temple? <laughs> and we were like, yeah. And he's like, which movie? Uh, Ghost Rider? You're not even speaking of a good Nick Cage movie in the temple. And they're like, sorry, I don't know the protocol. <laughs> so we left the temple, and, and now Pedro and I, were like partners in crime. We're like just joking around. We're giggling. We're just, uh, basically what we did for the next five hours was be like, that looks crazy. And then we'd walk over to it, and we'd be like, it is crazy. <laughs> and um, so... And I noticed that like, in addition to the physical effects, I started to feel these emotional effects from the LSD, and I started to feel super bonded. And it sounds weird, but it started in my head, it felt like we were a whole, like we could not be separated. Like if we got separated, it would be like we were cut in half, to the point where like, if Pedro was like, I gotta go to the bathroom, I was like, well, we're both going then. <laughs> and then we would walk over, like we couldn't get more than 10 feet apart. And it was weird, but adorable. Um, so, and, and, and the strange thing was the bond lasted past the drugs. Like the whole week, we were like inseparable. We would go do things together. We'd sit together at meals. Uh, we would volunteer to bartend together at the parties our camp threw. Uh, about two days in, we started calling each other hubby. <laughs> he was English, so he'd be like, need a beer, hubby. Yes, I do. Yes. And, um, and so we were always drinking beers together. And at one point, we were voted cutest couple at Burning Man by our camp. And yeah, it was this weird thing where we just, it was, I couldn't describe it. The only reference I had for this experience was like falling in love, like love at first sight. When you just meet someone and you connect and you're like so into each other, that's what it was like with him, but with friendship. And like it wasn't sexual. Like would I have fucked him? Yeah. Um, but that's not what it was about, you know? It's not what it was about. Like he just, I've ha I have a lot of great male friends, but this guy swept me off my feet. That's what I'm saying. And so um, we're, we're just hanging out all week, and we get to the end, and at the end of the week, they burn the man. That's how the place gets its name, and it's this 50-foot-high statue. It's made of wood. At, at that point, it's at its peak capacity. There's 50,000 people, and everyone comes out and forms this giant circle around the man, and they start to burn it, and the, the flame starts small, and then the, the whole thing gets engulfed, and it's this giant inferno, and there's pockets of fireworks going off, and there's this tension in the crowd, like waiting for this thing to burn to the ground. It takes like 30, 45 minutes. And then when the final piece fell, it was just fucking chaos. Like people just erupt, like it was animalist. People were singing and dancing and yelling and kissing and taking their clothes off and crying. And just everyone's feeling all of the emotions. <laughs> uh, like that kind of thing. And, and we started running. A lot of people started running around the ashes and I like got caught up in it. And I was like, ah! And I started running with them and I was like howling. And, and, and I was on LSD again, I should mention. Um, <laughs> And it was, it was just, it was insane. It was crazy. And then after about 15 minutes of just total group think, no idea what I'm doing, chaos, this thought popped into my head and it was, where's Pedro? <laughs> I miss Pedro. And I had this feeling, it was like the last day of camp. I was like, I have to tell him how I feel. Because <laughs> we're going home tomorrow. And so I like was running through the crowd trying to find him. Finally, I found him and he was kind of on the edge of the crowd drinking a beer. And I walked up. He's like, need a beer, hubby? And I was like, I do. And he, he had a beer in his pocket. He always had a beer in his pocket. He's great. <laughs> and um, so we had a beer and we were kind of drinking beers and silently watching what was going on. And I, I put my arm around him. And I was like, Pedro, before the drugs were off, I need to tell you that I love you. 
I've known you five days, but you seem like one of my best friends in the world. And he kind of a choked out a thank you through tears. Hubby's a bit of a crier. Um, and he said, I love you too. And then he gave me a hug. And uh, I'm not much of a crier. Basically, like, uh, getting dumped and dogs dying. That's, like, it for me on crying. Never movies, never books. But I started, I wasn't, like, bawling, but I teared up and I started crying while I was hugging. It was probably the longest hug I've ever had with a non-relative male. Um, and so, and, and it occurred to me that I had gone to burning, like, my Burning Man experience was going to be the fuck pile. That's what I was all about. I like, was not that into the spirituality and the hippy-dippy stuff and the sincerity. And I was like, well, here I am hugging a man and crying <laughs> on LSD. And you know what? It feels amazing. It's way better than any fuck pile ever. And, uh, and then we hugged for a while and then we stopped because uh, some topless girl was hula hooping and I was like, that's interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, we, at the end of the week, we went, he went back to London. I, I came back here to L.A. And, uh, you know, we're doing the long distance thing. It's uh, hard. But we email all the time. And so I was just, it was just a very, I'm not a very sincere guy in general in my life. To, so to have that moment of sincerity uh, was really great. And to, it was like I was a little kid. I'd made best friends instantly again, like you did in kindergarten and stuff. And, and that felt really good. And that's my story. Thanks. We should try Smaster. I hear it's a real cool trip. LSD is very powerful stuff. And that's just what it is, stuff. It's not good, it's not bad. It's only a chemical, a drug. Everyone says when you drop some acid, the whole world becomes clear to you, like an open book. It would take more than LSD for me to understand what's wrong with the whole world. You may think that you know things when you're up, but you can't really know any more than you already knew before you took the LSD. LSD is the greatest gift to mankind since Tutti Frutti ice cream. I'm talking about acid, dummy. Christmas and it's about 6 30 I'm on I-95 going home there's nothing you know and I see a dog and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him I don't know where he came from and I'm like this dog is gonna run out in front of my car and he absolutely did so he runs out in front of my car I hear it crinkle crack everything I freak the fuck out. Like, I'm in my car, like, yeah. And so then I hear this guy, like, banging on the window, and he's like, Are you alright? Are you alright? And I was like, What? You know? Like, whatever you think a redneck is, that's what this guy was. Okay? He's got the tattoos. Stringy hair, the hat, he had a tooth every now and then. Like the whole, the whole thing. So I was like, yeah, I'm all right. And I was like, I should probably let down the window, so. I was like, I killed a dog, I killed a dog. 
He's like, baby girl, don't you worry about that goddamn dog. That dog committed suicide. I don't know where that fucker even came from. If you had swerved, you would have killed yourself. If you slammed on brakes, you would have killed all of us. You did the right thing. So, that made me feel a little better, but not much. It's like, let's check out your car. So we open my hood and it's just spewing everything everywhere. And I'm like, oh my God. And so he's like, I'll follow you to the next exit. You can call somebody to come pick you up. So it's like, okay. So we go to the next exit. I call my family, you know, they're expecting me. And they all freak the fuck out. You know, my dad calls my brother, calls my uncle, who calls my other uncle, who's kind of sort of a mechanic, and they all come pick me up, you know? <laughs> Like they're like an hour and a half away. So I go back over to this guy and I'm like, sir, you know, thank you so much. I, I just, I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't stopped because I was really just freaking the fuck out. You know? And he's like, baby girl, I ain't going nowhere. You still crying and shaking like a fucking leaf on a tree. I'll be a son of a bitch if I left you out here by yourself like that on Christmas morning. I was just sitting here rolling this joint, so I was gonna finish that anyway before I left. So I look at this man, and then my exact words were, Please, sir, may I have some? And he's like, Hell yeah, get on in here. So I'm sitting on the CNT exit off 95 in a 1978 Thunderbird that's gray with burgundy interior with a guy who if I saw on the street, I'd probably cross the fucking street. He's rolling a joint and I'm about to smoke it. And I'm just like, you know, it's, see what happens, you know? So I get inside and you know how like the windows used to be black and now they're kind of purplish, whatever. So he finishes the joint and we start smoking. So I'm like, where are you from? <laughs> you know? So he tells me his life story. And I don't know what he considers a fortune. But he's like, you know, I've had a fortune. I've lost a fortune. Now I live in a trailer park. Sell a little bit of drugs. Just, you know, some black guys in different trailer parks, you know. You know, I really don't trust black people, but you seem kind of cool. Yeah. And I was like, well, thank you, sir. As a redneck, you are pretty awesome as well. It's like, I got this one friend, one black friend. His name's Tony. I think he's the only black person I've ever let in my house. I don't know why. You don't know why. I know each other. So he starts telling me uh, like all these stories. He's like, yeah, you know, I sell a little weed, and you know, you can make meth anywhere, some cocaine, not too much here, and just making a living, you know, just making a living. And my wife, she got in this real bad accident. So she basically has a steel spine, which means like she's always in pain. So she gets 160 Oxycontin a month. Well, she don't take it all because she smokes a lot of weed. So she sells her Oxycontin. That's just to make her some little money on the side. Yeah. So. 
do you have some drugs in the car? Let's go ahead and get that out the way. Probably should go ahead and tell you that, you know? At that point, I was like, I don't fucking care, you know? I don't. So, we're still smoking, like, I don't know how many joints we smoked. We're like, I, I'm sharing his Mountain Dew. You know? <laughs> Hepatitis, you know, like, I get caught in milk. I'm like, can I have some? He's like, sure, oh my god. Ugh, yeah. Probably gonna drop dead. Anyway, so he starts telling me these stories about like how drug deals go bad and you know how he's been shot and he's been stabbed and like. You know, you wait two weeks and you're talking to this person to set up a drug deal and you don't know, like, you know, if they're going to kill you or take your drugs or kill you and take your drugs or if they just really want to make a drug deal, you know? And he's like, yeah, and it's like, you know, I spent the night in my car a couple times and, you know, I mean, you know, I've been in jail, got out of jail, went back to jail, you know? And Tony was apparently one of the guys who helped take care of his wife while he was in jail, the black guy. So that's why I guess he trusts him and let him in his house. But um, <clears throat> but he's like, you know, my wife's brother's the big drug dealer. <laughs> so I'm listening to all these stories about like the police and running and you know fleeing and getting shot and stabbed, and I'm like fascinated, and I just started. Bawling. Like I was crying my eyes out. And he's like, what's wrong? And I was like, my life is so fucking boring. <laughs> no one's ever tried to kill me. No one's ever tried to take my drugs. Like, I did everything right. I went to school. I got good grades. I went to school fucking again. I got good grades. I went to school fucking again and got good grades. And then I got a job that I fucking hate. So I got another job that I also fucking hate. So I got another job that I also fucking hate. And I leave the fucking job that I hate. And I go to my one bedroom apartment with no dog, no cat, no house plan. I'm the only fucking thing living in my apartment. Okay? I don't have any boyfriends, I don't have any prospects. I haven't had sex in a year and a half. Do you know how long that is? It's a long fucking time and a lot of fucking batteries, okay? Like, I have done, I'm that girl. Like, I'm not gonna go somewhere, you know, for the weekend without some place to stay. You know, like, I don't do that. I did marijuana and, you know, in college everybody did, but I'd never do cocaine, because they're like, God, it's cocaine. You know, I didn't know why I even fucking call this, like, a life, you know? Like, it's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. I take care of my parents. I take care of my siblings. I'm a good fucking person. I say please and fucking thank you all the goddamn time, and I fucking hate it. I hate it. I should have died just then. This is a waste of a fucking life. <laughs> He's like, all right, come on back. Come on back. Come on back. He's like, here, smoke this. And it was something like a skull or something like that. But it made me feel better. 
So I was like, this was a sign. This was supposed to happen. I was supposed to get in this accident, and I was supposed to meet you. And you know what? From now on, everything in my life is going to be different. If I want to do something, I'm going to fucking do it. If I don't like somebody, I'm like, you know what? I don't fucking like you. If I like somebody, I'm going to be like, you know what? I like you. Why don't you come back to my one-bedroom apartment where I'm going to live in? Let's hang out for a little bit, you know? I'm like, if I want to go somewhere, I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to take chances. Because what's the worst thing that could happen? I could die. That's going to fucking happen anyway. I could go to jail. You've been to jail. Seems like you're doing all right. I mean, what's the big fucking deal? You know? So my brother calls, and he's like 10 minutes away. And so the guy leaves, and he gives me a gigantic bag of weed. <laughs> like, a gigantic bag of weed and a handful of Oxycontin, because he said I was going to be sore the next day. You know, and he was right, absolutely. So my brother gets there, and I'm just, like, telling him, I was like, Oh my god, I just met this guy and he was so cool, he's kind of sort of redneck and his wife has still fucking spine, but you know what? I'm gonna live the rest of my life and I'm gonna do what I wanna do. If I don't like to be and be like, fuck you, you know what? And I just think it was meant to be that I got in this accident that that, that, that could have been Jesus. You don't know. Okay? You don't know. So, meanwhile, I have no proof that this man ever existed <laughs> other than weed and Oxycontin, which I could have gotten from anywhere. So, uh, to this day, I don't know if my brother thinks I'm absolutely fucking insane, uh, but it turned out to be a pretty good day. So, there you go. <laughs> This is Risk. This is Beastie Boys behind me again. And we just heard a little sound collage called Acid Jazz by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And before that, Sean Kennedy told that story that we call Roadside Assistance when Risk was live in Charleston all the way back in 2013. Next up, a story that Jen Kwok told at a Risk Live show in New York City in 2014. Here's Jen now with a story we call The Connections. So two years ago, January 3rd, 2012, I was sitting on an express bus going from Staten Island to Manhattan. And I was listening to my iPod, Florence and the Machine, and I was writing in my notebook about how I'd felt about the past week. And I reached this state of calm that I'd never felt before in my life. I had just gotten out of a really long battle with depression, and I always had this recurring image in my head of myself standing on this dark stage alone, with a theater spotlight literally inside my torso, and it was always turned inward, and I couldn't picture it turning out 
into the world because I was afraid to share, I was afraid to connect. And I didn't believe in myself or my talent or whether or not I even deserved to be alive. But in this particular moment on this express bus, that image was different in two ways. For once, I was able to see it shining out and I was also seeing it first person for the first time ever. So I saw myself with this light shining inside of me, bursting out like a sun, like a star. It was like nothing I'd ever felt before. And my eyes were closed and I could see it so clearly. I opened my eyes, I looked outside the bus and everything was glowing. I mean glowing. It was beautiful, it was storefronts, it was cars, trees, just fucking glowing. Things were a lot different earlier that week. Uh, Tom, my husband, then fiance, and I were getting ready for Christmas with his parents on Staten Island. Christmas Eve morning, they went out for a jog at the park with their dog, Graffles. I had just gotten into the shower. I had just wet my hair, and I heard a knock on the door. I felt Tom rush past the door, and he yelled something that I couldn't make out, and it turned out that his father had suffered a serious heart attack. It came out of nowhere. He had been to the doctor the week before and they said he was in excellent health. And luckily there was a off-duty fireman there that day jogging as well and he was able to give Ed CPR immediately. So he survived the heart attack but he had brain damage. And in order to save whatever brain function he had left, uh, the doctors sedated him and they put him in what they call induced hypothermia. So we went to see him in the ICU and every every person in Tom's family looked completely different than I had ever seen them in my life. Tom, my husband, who's a 6'5", Clark Kent-looking guy, he was just slumped over holding his dad's hand, which I'm sure he had not done since he was a kid. And Krista, Tom's mom, who is this very sweet but semi-stoic German school teacher, was just broken down. She was talking to her husband, begging him to get better, telling him how much we loved him whether or not he could hear. And Ed just looked like he was sleeping. But because of the hypothermia machine, which was keeping his body cool, he was shivering. And it was this full body shiver. And when he would shake, his head would bob up and down like he was saying, yes, I hear you. Yes, I'm gonna get better. And Ed was always a quiet guy, but he liked to make these like punny Irish dad jokes. And he always did them in this like vaudevillian accent. And I remember the last thing he said to me before the walk that day, he said, we're gonna have scallops tonight. Mmm, scallops. <laughs> and it was Christmas Eve. Tom dropped me back home, his mom and him stayed there with Ed and uh, when I got home I was looking for food in the fridge and I opened it up and there was that big bag of scallops that we were never going to eat and it hit me was I in a dead man's house I was so freaked out the terror just entered my body and I went to the bathroom and I looked around and I just imagined all his old dead skin cells just all over everything. And I imagined him, this 
darker version of himself coming to me like a ghost trapped between life and death and demanding to know where his family was and why was I the only person there in his house? Well, the next morning was Christmas and we went to see Ed again. And now, instead of just shivering, he was having full-on seizures every time the sedation came down. And the doctors literally had no idea what was gonna happen. The day after Christmas was Tom's 30th birthday. And Krista made Pillsbury croissants like she always did. And Tom opened his presents like he always did. And when he opened his birthday card from his dad, he just lost it. And we were just in this tiny bubble of sadness that just absorbed any sort of happiness, any anything. And I remembered how weird it felt when my sister texted me from our family's huge Christmas party in California. She was like, oh, too much family. And here we were, just the three of us, just wishing things could be normal. And a few more days went by, and one morning Tom and I were getting ready to go to the hospital, brushing our teeth. He spit in the sink and he just turned and looked at me and he said, if we ever have kids, we should have two. And we had never talked about having kids before. And I was now profoundly aware of how alone he felt through this entire experience. And a week went by, it was New Year's Day, Tom called me from the hospital and he said, we have to make a decision about whether or not to pull the plug. And he came home later, he explained to me that his parents had watched this movie once, a Lifetime movie or something, where a guy was on a machine and his dad started crying, which he never did. And he told his mom, if this ever happens to me, do not let me stay this way. So we knew what the decision was gonna be. So Krista came home and we just all cried with this huge sobbing mess. And it was a sort of pain that I'd never felt before or knew was even possible. And even Graffles, the dog came over, just confused, licking our hands, trying to do something. I don't know, what? Later on, Tom broke down again in his room and he said, I'm not even crying for my dad anymore. I'm just crying for my mom because she met him when she was 19 and he's all she's ever known. So we went to bed. Tom was in his childhood bed and I was on an inflatable mattress. Our heads were perpendicular to each other and we were just laying there. I knew that we were both awake. And I said, Tom, remember when we first met? And it was a long pause. Finally, he said, yeah. There's another long pause and he said, I, I wanted to play with your hair right away. And he'd never told me that before. So the next morning, Tom and his mom had their coffee. They went off to the hospital and I stayed at home. I was in this vortex, checking my email, Facebook, Twitter, Scorpio's horoscope, this loop of trying to figure out what to do, how to numb myself, I don't know. And I was in my own cyber waiting room. And I felt okay not being there because they had known Ed pretty much their whole lives. And I had only seen him, you know, a handful of Thanksgivings or, or dinners. But they came home and it was, it was like an actual grieving time. And 
it sucked. Christo went up to her room and Tom and I were together in the living room and he stopped crying at one point and he said, when the time came, I was gonna ask him how to be a dad. It hit me again, out of nowhere. And later I was brushing my teeth, getting ready for bed. And this decision just came to me, this rush. It was so clear. And I said, Tommy, I'm gonna pursue performing and writing for three more years. Find some kind of success, whatever that means. And then we should start a family. And he said, that sounds like a good plan. And the next morning, something strange happened to me. I was sitting on the express bus from Staten Island to Manhattan, and everything was so beautiful. <laughs> everything was glowing, and I couldn't understand it, but I fucking felt it more than anything I felt in my life. And I looked out the window, and everything was beautiful. The sky and the buildings and every single person who came on the bus, I just saw beauty in their faces. I felt connected to everything. And it was amazing. And I would look out and I would see beyond and I would see more. And I was aware of every detail at the same time I saw every crisscross on a metal crane and I, I saw every window on every building and I felt the life that was inside and I was aware of the atoms that made up all the people that were living these lives. And it just felt so infinite and everything was possible and we're all in it together. And then I felt Tom, his mom, my family, I, I felt them almost like they were there. And I saw Tom's energy and his mom's energy and his dad's energy like watching over them. And it was just this connection that I couldn't explain. It felt so real and I felt like they were there. And at one point I looked at a bus that was passing by and I saw a poster of Dustin Hoffman and I felt connected to Dustin Hoffman, you guys. It was amazing. And this feeling, it only lasted about an hour. It subsided as soon as I walked into work, but. <laughs> But I, I don't know if it was a short span of enlightenment. I don't know what it was, but it's what I imagine that enlightenment would feel like. And I wonder sometimes if I momentarily lost my mind, but I'm still grateful for it. Thank you.
Well, that is all for this, our final episode of 2023, folks. This is Nona Phoenix behind me now, and we just heard from Jen Kwok. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, folks, (laughs) it was a challenging year, and I suspect we're in for Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, maybe the craziest year ever. We hope you'll keep on keeping on with us, and we'll all try to stay as sane and as human as we can together. Happy New Year, everyone. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk. (laughs) 